Welcome to another episode of Urban Life Enabled, Enerhub's podcast for sharing news, views and stories about connecting, activating and measuring urban life in our public places and spaces. My name is Adam Beck and I'll be with you for the next little while as we unpack another topic relevant to enabling urban life. So let's go. In this episode of the Urban Life Enabled podcast, we speak with Chris Vanderpol, who's currently Senior Planner and Urban Designer with JFP Urban Consultants on the Sunshine Coast in Queensland. Chris spent more than 12 years with property developers, time in the private sector, and is an expert reference panel member for the Green Building Council of Australia in Sustainable Precincts. We hope you enjoy this episode. Chris, thanks so much for joining us on the Urban Life Enabled podcast. How's life? You going well? Yes, everything is going well at the moment. The sun is shining um, and it feels like there's a bit of a change in the wind. Things are, things are changing in the urban development space for the better. I noted recently, Chris, you've been appointed to some task force or advisory group around the Brisbane 2032 Olympic Games. You are based on the Sunshine Coast, but can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yes, yeah, so at the Sunshine Coast Regional Council established a community reference group um, specifically around the legacy of the 2032 Olympic and Paralympic Games, looking at perhaps how to focus those efforts, uh, looking at the benefits that the Games will bring and how to leverage some longer-term benefits for the community. In a way, it's looking at how you can use the Olympic Games um, and you know, the various venues and facilities that are associated with it on the coast to leverage some longer-term and um, you know, stickiness in, in the benefits that, that come from that. So... There's a, uh, a group of people that were nominated or elected by the uh, local council. So I uh, threw my head in the ring for that, um, just based on my long-term experience in, in uh, planning and development, particularly from the area of uh, sustainability and environment. That was kind of my focus in the group. I was very... Yeah, really related to, to the goal of making it the carbon positive Olympics. So I wanted to see how I could assist in that regard. So we've had a number of uh, meetings in, in that regard, great bunch of people. We've uh, come up with a vision document, or rather I should say the council formulated the vision document, the legacy vision document, with the inputs that we provided at various stages. That's now been released. Um, the next event on the horizon is the state legacy group meeting, which I'll be attending in March. So I'm looking forward to that. So the legacy that is associated with not just games, but all urban development more broadly is obviously a critical one that we all aspire to achieve. Thinking about those sort of Olympic and Paralympic Games in 2032, sort of eight to 10 years time. It's interesting to reflect then, of course, on where we've come from as well. And you've been part of that journey for quite a while, or should I say that transformation for quite a while in the urban development and property development sector. I'd love to get your views to kick off with 
Chris, what have been the biggest wins that you think we've been able to realise as an industry when it comes to land development, urban development, and the varying aspirational goals that we have around sustainability? What are the big wins so far? I think I'd put top of the list that is that sustainability has become the core business of most top-tier developers. There are a range of very strong corporate governance structures that are in place for a lot of developers, which has really been a transformation that I've seen over the course of my career. It was largely unheard of, I guess, yeah, very early in my career, but now, as I say, it's core business. In terms of responsible practices, responsible sourcing of materials, at a project level, effective waste stream management um, and uh, energy and water efficiency. Um, So it's kind of something that flows all the way through the development process from the very top um, down down to the project uh, level. Um, I think working in conjunction with the adoption of fairly... Well, they're strong in the sense of they've come a long way. I think they've still got a long way to go. But in terms of state and federal government targets for emission reductions, I see the the strong corporate governance is working hand in hand with those sort of things. There's, I think at a market level, there's also been a widespread acceptance by the public of sustainability features and systems. It's something now that they, they really want. They don't always really understand what they want. But I think they do really engage with things like ranges of facilities, parks and recreation, active transport, transport facilities, as well as the ongoing you know, energy and, and water efficiency and cost savings that, that are associated with that. I think there's also an appreciation from the from developers that it is now starting to add value and add a premium to the products that they're developing. I think we still lack a lot of data in that regard about what are the returns on investments, what are the costs and benefits. And I I think there's a lot of development in that space, but I I think we're starting to see that really now become part of the language that we're talking about when we're both developing projects and communicating with end users as to uh, the, the sort of things that need to be included in developments. That's also set against a background of increased regulation of, I think in a, in a sense, the energy efficiency and water efficiency and livability and comfort in houses was a, was a big gap in the market for a very long time. So I think we're seeing a lot of work in that space, through whether it's through the National Construction Code, Green Star Homes, Neighbours, Nathus, and all those sort of things are really becoming everyday language in in dealing with what was previously a a pretty much overlooked segment of the community, but a very, the sustainability puzzle, as it were, um, which was was homes. So I think there's been a lot of of great work in that space, but we've still got some way to go. And the the role and influencing sort of element that the Green Building Council of Australia has had, and indeed it's its rating systems, and you've been a sort of a, yes. a, a part of the furniture for quite some time. This transformation has involved, you know, various different fronts that have needed to be advanced, whether it be 
you know, advocating to government and trying to influence policy. You've got the supply chain that you need to upskill and build sort of capability and capacity. You need the the real sort of end of pipe solution providers to be part of that. You know, there's a lot of stakeholders involved and I suspect that's why it doesn't happen overnight. You know, it's been a 10, 15, 20 year journey for sort of sustainable property development to to get where it is. On the time element of things, have we have we still got more work to do and in what areas and what backdrop of time does this become in some way kind of urgent now? Well, I think for all that we've done, we have still got a long way to go and we have to do it very quickly. Um, the principal imperative, as I see it, is, is you know, the climate-related emergency that we have. Um, we're at the stage now where, where, and if you look at uh, books like uh, Ross Garner's edited uh, Superpower, Superpower Transformation, released last year, that helped in my mind solidify, okay, how much carbon have we got left to put into the, into the atmosphere if we want to maintain those goals under the Paris Agreement? And it's a finite amount and you kind of look at it and you go, okay, that's scary because we've still got such a long way to go for all the things that we've done. So I think there's very much a time focus now on achieving those emission reductions very, very quickly. And obviously the development sector as a, as a, you know, a significant piece of that puzzle and a significant generator needs to transform very quickly. So I think we do have our backup up against the wall at the moment, but we certainly have the tools that we need to be able to make some, some great strides forward. And I think what you're talking about there, about the number of pieces that are in the development chain in development, the developers, the suppliers, the consultants, the end consumers, all of those parties seem to be getting on board. They seem to have an increasingly sophisticated understanding of that underlying imperative of climate change. They probably tend to think, and this is obviously a, quite a generalisation, that what they're doing now is enough. And I don't believe that it is. So that's why we really need to step up our game when it comes to development and making it more sustainable and and embedding that sustainability and those carbon emissions in a very real and urgent manner. So, Chris, let me paint a scenario now. There's a new agenda. There's a new thematic area or topic that walks into the room and it's called digital and data. It's called smart, connected and intelligent. And it and it walks in and it makes the bold statement that it can help enable some form of an acceleration towards those good outcomes because digital and data is it's certain technological innovation. It's, of course, data and insights that allows us to know what's happening and what isn't happening. It's sort of a, a, a real mashup of a number of issues and topics that 
people, some people embrace, some can't stand it, some are concerned and scared, others can't wait to get into it. But of course, it's it's new. It hasn't been part of the traditional urban development process and transformation. And so there's no necessarily clear business case or ROI yet at the moment. How does the development sector and the urban development process in your mind, begin to try and understand what digital and data has to offer and how its embodiment in urban development could play out? I think it's the magic bullet in a way. It's a new set of tools that we have as part of the urban development process really to drive that change in in the fundamental way that we need to over over the next decade. So... Good data is the basis of everything that we need to do. Even if you look at the fairly standard case of demonstrating a return on investment to a developer or a proponent to show how it can drive increases in sustainability and livability, Um, what's the life cycle cost assessment associated with the introduction of sustainability technologies. Where does it make sense in a financial sense, in a social sense, in a governance sense? And as I said earlier, I think there's a lot of data that's still lacking in that regard. It's very hard to come up with clear and defined business cases for the introduction of technologies and and resources that you can go, okay, this makes sense because of this, 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 and if you do this, This is what you're going to get out of it. So I think the only way we can really, you know, fundamentally improve that process is by having good data, understanding use patterns so that we can improve urban experiences, we can get effective responses to service requirements, we can work out the effectiveness of interventions enable end-user inputs to the products that are being created and develop digital tools and platforms to enhance engagement and collaboration in urban development projects. So that free flow of information, I think, is something that really feeds into that return on investment and also that usability side of things. That, that makes it part of the everyday development language. Now, I would say that's still in its infancy, and you, you're well aware data tends to be looked at in an urban environment in fairly simplistic terms about when do I need to empty my rubbish bins? Do I get good Wi-Fi in areas that, that I'm using? But I think as a data source for informing our planning decisions is, is something that's, that's critical. In terms of planning schemes, I, I think yeah, at a day-to-day level, planning schemes fundamentally affect what we can do in the development space. And they largely operate in the absence of good data. Now, that data will largely feed into the information collection stage when they're being prepared. But I think the weakness at the moment is that the data good data and robust and widespread data isn't used to inform day-to-day planning schemes, implementation. And I also think that 
planning schemes are inherently inflexible, uh, particularly in the current age where I'm seeing a trend towards increased reliance on acceptable outcomes for, for development rather than the performance outcomes. So one solution, in effect, is, is kind of a, a universal answer that local authorities at the moment seem to want to see, whereas if you can have good data and good information that's backing up what you're trying to propose, particularly where things are a little bit outside of box, I think that offers the opportunity to lend increased agility to planning scheme provisions and how they apply to development. So, Chris, who takes the lead on this? I get the sense that the planning scheme isn't necessarily going to embrace or demand digital and data anytime soon. Is it going to be the practitioners like yourself, the planners and urban designers that try and nudge this forward? Is the is the private sector property developers, are they going to step up first and it'll be a bit like green building where they try and outdo each other and, you know, there's the first case study and then this one's doing best practice. How do you think this is actually going to play out in the in the marketplace? Who's going to take the lead? Well, look, I, I think it's interesting that you, you probably have to look at why is there still this rigidity in planning systems at the moment? And what I'm seeing is, I guess, councils and development administrators want to be seen as transparent and following the rules. So particularly from the perspective of how the, the community and the elected representatives, I think councils fundamentally want to be seen to be operating in an above-board manner that the general public can understand the decisions that have been made and they generally follow the rules that are in the, the planning scheme documents. So, and that's understandable. I, I fully understand and appreciate where they're coming from in that regard. But I think fear of making decisions because you're perhaps hamstrung by community expectations is a perfect environment in which platforms for engagement with the community, the use of data and evidence-based in your engagement with the community is a way to break down that mm -hmm. fear of making decisions that, that may rub the community up the wrong way. If you're engaged in a fairly fundamental and technolo technologically savvy way in engagement with the community, and it, I think that's going to make a huge difference. But what we need to move beyond is the keyboard warrior, Facebook type hero responses that you get in abundance with the current social media platforms to anything that local authorities or, or even development proponents want to put forward, um, particularly when they want to trial new things or, or move away from that rigorous compliance-based planning system. So I think there needs to be better mechanisms that we can use to engage with the community and and having good digital platforms whereby we can do that and good data that can be 
accessible to the community to say, okay, what's the influence of this? How do we measure the effectiveness of this? How do we protect community amenity and values and so forth? And is is a, yeah, a real way we can move forward on this. Well, Chris, I've certainly been buoyed by your enthusiasm and, and passion for ensuring that the urban development sector continues to transform. And I uh, I certainly uh, thank you for all the work that you've been doing on behalf of all of us in helping champion that sustainable transformation journey. There's certainly more to come in uh, in the future when it comes to technology and digital and data and I think it's going to be an exciting ride. But as you say, time is a little bit scarce for us. But likewise, here on the podcast, we're at time. That's been a fantastic conversation. I wanted to thank you for that. There's more to come, I think, on this thread of dialogue and really looking forward to hearing more from you in the future. But for now, thanks so much for joining us on the Urban Life Enabled podcast. My pleasure. Thanks, Adam. Well, we hope you like this episode of Urban Life Enabled. Remember, if you'd like to subscribe, head to your favourite podcast platform. You'll find us there. Just search for Urban Life Enabled. You can also head along to our website to listen to all of our episodes and also find out more information about Life Enabled. Just head to the website lifeenabled.com. There's a hyphen between life and enabled. Thanks for joining us.